0: This podcast contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Even if the war would stop now or even if the war would stop like a few months uh, before, it means that from environmental perspective, uh, the harm that Russia brought is huge. Uh, from all that pollution that actually they brought to us, it, it will mean that it will affect us like uh, in years uh, after the war would stop.
0: Every day, when hundreds civilians are killed in conflict and countless more are harmed, yet their perspectives are often missing from the stories we tell about war.
2: This is the Civilian Protection Podcast, a monthly podcast produced by CivIC and PAX. Hey everyone, this is Mark Carlosco, military advisor from PAX,
0: and I'm Annie Sheil, senior advisor for the United States at Center for Civilians in Conflict or CivIC. Our organizations work in conflicts around the world to protect civilians caught in war.
2: And in today's episode, we're returning to a conflict that we covered in season one, the war in Ukraine.
0: At the time, the war had been underway for a month and its toll on civilians was already devastating. We spoke about civilian casualties, the staggering number of refugees and internally displaced people, about besieged communities that had lost access to essential services, and the overall sense of despair. And what we heard from my civic colleagues working on Ukraine is that it seemed as if civilians and the resources they relied on were being targeted intentionally.
3: But as the conflict escalated, the reports of attacks by Russian forces um, that appeared to be... um, directed at civilians the areas multiplied and, and and the types of incidents that uh, we uh, collected report and um, ranged from um, attacks on uh, civilians themselves attacks on uh, residential areas uh, attacks on hospitals maternities um, on uh, pediatric houses, uh, psychological clinics, but also attacks on civilian infrastructure such as power plants, uh, dangerous sites such as nuclear plants.
2: Now, it's been over eight months of fighting since Russia invaded Ukraine, and there's been no end to civilian suffering. The United Nations has recorded over 6,000 civilian deaths, among which more than 400 are children, as well as close to 10,000 injured, while acknowledging that the actual numbers are likely considerably higher because the UN is in the process of corroborating further reports and doesn't have access to information from all the areas. Additionally, many cities and towns have been destroyed and it's estimated that over 7.5 million Ukrainians have taken the difficult decision to leave everything they know behind and flee their country.
0: Today's episode focuses on yet another aspect of harm from the conflict, and that's the damage this war is causing to the environment, and the short and long-term costs of looming environmental disaster for civilians.
2: As it so happens, the UN declared the 6th of November, so yesterday, the International Day for Preventing the Exploitation of the Environment in War and Armed Conflict. And this isn't without reason. The UN called this day into existence because it saw a need to call attention the fact that the environment often suffers greatly from armed conflict, that this comes with real human costs, and that action on the environment will have to be a necessary part of any effort at conflict prevention, peacekeeping, or peacebuilding. Because, and I'm quoting the UN here, there can be no durable peace if the natural resources that sustain livelihoods and ecosystems are destroyed.
0: Both our organizations have done work exploring the links between conflict, climate, and the environment. We know that climate change and environmental degradation can be both drivers of conflict, as well as consequences of conflict, consequences that have serious long-term repercussions for civilians and the resources that they need to survive.
2: This episode, part one of our exploration of this topic, will focus on the latter by exploring how the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing war is impacting the natural environment both now and in the future, and what that will mean for people in Ukraine. To better understand this issue, my colleague, Aaron, a civilian harm researcher and part of our podcast production team, spoke to Yevenia Sasyatko, a civil society activist in Ukraine who works on climate.
1: Yeah, My name is uh, Yevgenia Zasiatyko. I'm a head of climate department uh, and civil society organization, Ukrainian. It's called Center for Environmental Initiative Coaction, shortly a co-action. We're based in Kyiv uh, and been established in 2017. And uh, before the war, we've been focused on climate change. It was our umbrella topic it's since February. Uh, we understood that actually. Um, so when the war is actually started, so we um, started to adapt. We also had a few new topics as uh, impact to the environment of the war, and we never worked with this topic before. Uh, and also my colleague who worked with agriculture, they also focus now on food security, and we started to work on uh, sanctions. It's been eight to nine months of fighting uh, since Russia invaded. How has that affected the environment in Ukraine? The problem now, because uh, the war is still going, uh, it's impossible to actually understand the whole volume of impact to the environment. Plus, uh, some territories still occupied. It's like Lugansk, Donetsk, Kherson region, Zaporizhia. And we don't have even access to the territories, so we can only monitor the open resources, media. Uh, regional, national, what is happening in different regions and trying to at least have this list of uh, what kind of uh uh, cases that can impact uh, direct, directly environment but uh, so far now we have more than 600 cases that potentially can bring harm to, to the environment uh, and it's like all around Ukraine uh, but of course the east and the south it's the biggest numbers uh, because first of all it's um, east is industrial part of the Ukraine so we had a lot of uh, industry plants, coal mines there uh, and Russia is targeting them. I don't think that they are actually trying to bring the harm to the environment in Ukraine, but actually it's uh, but it's still happening, and it means that it will like impact us uh, now and in the future.
4: What kind of impact are we talking about? What kind of tactics are affecting the environment
1: and in what kind of ways? So, for example, we are monitoring the impact to marine ecosystem, impact to the ecosystem, uh, to the industry, to the energy system. Uh, uh, mostly now, by, n- by numbers, uh, the industry has been destroyed most. Uh, and uh, we had, for example, cases in some region when uh, chemical um, sumo-hympo its chemical plant uh, been uh, destroyed and exit uh, nitrogen been uh, leaked from that. So the village which has been closed uh, been affected, it was in March. Um, and we also have a uh, numbers of um, coal mines uh, flooded. And from February, like there has been uh, at least five coal mines been flooded because Russia targeted the energy system, so it means that uh, the uh, pipelines which has taken water from uh, underground water uh, doesn't work so it, it means flooded uh, so um, there's a lot of different cases uh, the same with ecosystem for example in uh, south of Ukraine we have a lot of uh, nature protected zone and uh, our colleague from in uh, Joe nature conservative group uh, actually, uh, calculate that around 40% of nature protected zone from 2014 been occupied or affected by uh, Russian actions so it includes Crimea and Donbass so it's 40% it's a huge number uh, even though like uh, we, don't, we have for example less number of protected zone in Ukraine than European countries so it's, it's huge and now like uh, around 20% uh, it's uh, the number Numbers from the ministry around 20% of Ukrainian nature protected zone under like bombing and uh, have a huge impact. So uh, from this part uh, there would be also a huge uh, negative uh, impact uh, to to the ecosystem, to um, yeah, yeah, human health and so on. Uh, so, Yeah, there's a lot of way how they can actually target us via environment. It's air pollution, soil pollution, underground pollution.
0: Clearly, the war is degrading the environment in Ukraine in some really serious ways. You know, Yvenya talked about militaries fighting in natural areas and resulting pollution of soil, water and air. And on the other hand, it seems hard to focus on these impacts when the immediate human toll of the war in Ukraine is so devastating. But environmental degradation will have a human toll too, so what do we know so far about the impact of all of this on Ukrainian civilians? How will they be affected by damage to the environment?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right, Annie. And to get a better sense of the impact on civilians, Erin also spoke to a colleague of ours from PAX, Irina Nikolaeva. She's an expert on environmental safety And she's based in Ukraine, where she monitors the impact of the war on the environment. And she's offered several detailed examples of environmental harm and those consequences for the civilian population.
3: The impact on the environment, um, let's say... The environmental damage from military action is huge across the whole country. Almost uh, the sort of Ukrainian uh, land is mined. This territory of about 200,000 square kilometers needs demining. Today Ukraine is one of the most mined countries in the
2: world. What Irina is talking about here is that parts of Ukraine, because of the war, are now covered in landmines
3: mindlands is a long-term influence on ordinary people's life. Um, For example, my friends from Kyiv Oblast cannot go in deep uh, green areas where they used to pick uh, mushrooms uh, or berries um, and it was a daily way of life. Families who are engaged in agricultural businesses are also at risk when cultivating land in the areas where the fighting took place. Um, Let's say only in October there are reports of this from detonation of mines. Farmers, road workers, emergency medical personnel and repairmen of communication system energy objects in different parts of the country. So I would say that that mines like an invisible enemy of Ukrainians now, and prevents us to use our land.
2: Just how long-term a problem mines are becomes clear when we consider that in countries like Cambodia and Laos, mines that were laid in conflicts that took place all the way back in the 1670s are still killing and maiming people today. Many of them children. That war has been over for decades. But there are still parts of the country that are dangerous or inaccessible. And in talking about mines, we're only considering one aspect of war. This is Irania again on the current situation in Ukraine and the impact of other degradations like the loss of clean water.
3: The conflict-related debris are significant burden on the environment, Mm, thousands of destroyed buildings, cars, uh, public transport, remains of military equipment and shells, uh, occupying a huge area of our lands. All these need proper storage with fuse, disposal, safe disposal, because this Debris contain substances toxic to the environment and human lives, such as asbestos and heavy metals, which uh, during the storage on the sky seep through the soil cover into the groundwater. And also I would like to say about water quality and the problem of the quality of water bodies um, has become urgent because there are attacks on the infrastructure of intake, purification and supply of water, as well as sewage treatment facilities. Water supply and drainage facilities in cities have been damaged. There is a problem of clogging with remands of military equipment, pollution from fuel, explosives, and so on. Therefore, ecosystem services of water, forest, land resources are being lost due to mine territories or areas uh, contaminated with explosive remands of war. Uh, All these leads to the losses of biodiversity and ecosystems of Ukraine.
2: Irina also mentioned attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure as particularly concerning for civilians.
3: The cut-off power supply in uh, populated areas creates a humanitarian crisis when people don't have access to basic life-supporting services like uh, clean drinking water, use of sewage service, heating system and uh, storage of food in the refrigeration unit, as well as there is no access to information and to service of public electric transport. One example is about uh, water quality. The main facility of the water treatment complex is uh, so-called air tank. Uh, intended for artificial biological treatment of wastewater using activated sludge and aeration. If the power supply is turned off, the air supplied is stopped leading to the death of these microorganisms and the sewage treatment um, process just does not take place. Non-operating treatment facility brings to the situation when the polluted influence entire the river directly, increasing public health risk related to unsafe water. And here we are talking about waterborne diseases and even about epidemic situation.
4: Are we already seeing the outbreak of diseases or is that a worry for like something that will happen in maybe the weeks or months to come?
3: We see epidemic situation in the Mariupol city. It mostly related to the occupied territory where they don't have access to the clean water and uh, oh, even no water at all. And the most vulnerable uh, group of people is um, children under 15.
2: Much of the degradation and resulting impacts on civilians that we see are by no means inevitable. Irina described how they're a product of the ways in which the war is being fought.
4: Are there other parts of the Russian military strategy or the way the conflict is being fought that are excessively harmful to the environment?
3: The most destructive incidents damaging the environment are happening due to the use of explosive weapons. These weapons cause fires, destroy forests, contaminate fertile soil pollute water bodies and damaged civilian infrastructure. Uh, the explosive weapons uh, used in populated areas is associated with many environmental risks such as high amounts of often contaminated rubble and what is more important, the disruption of life-supporting services which in turn creates humanitarian crisis, bringing some numbers um, just during October 10 and uh, to October 20, I mean, uh, just in 10 days, uh, Russia launched 154 cruise missiles and 176 drones at Ukraine. Most of them were directed to energy infrastructure.
2: And this is just the damage and environmental and civilian harm that we already see happening in Ukraine. But the war continues. And people like Irania and Yehevenia are watching with apprehension as even darker scenarios seem more and more likely to happen. There are big concerns about Russia damaging and targeting the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and the resulting potential nuclear pollution.
3: The Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Ukraine has been increasing worries of an accident there. Families living close to
1: Europe's largest nuclear facility say they're living in fear.
2: Here's Yevgenia again.
1: Another impact yep. which is now not visible and didn't happen and uh, uh, nuclear pollution. Uh, Russia still occupied the Parisian nuclear power plant station. The Parisian, it's like almost uh, every week we had the news that uh, they bomb and they're doing, even though they occupied that part, somehow, like... Um, Ukrainian military are not there, so they're still targeting. So it, it means that nuclear pollution can happen like at any moment, and it will affect uh, like a huge territory. So experts saying if uh, Zaporizhzhia nuclear power plant station will explode, uh, it means like second Chernobyl is happening, with the difference that Zaporizhzhia is very close to the Black Sea. So. It will also affect a lot um, these countries, which is close. Plus, uh, like it could go to to Europe or it could go to Russia. It depends, like where the wind would go. Uh, so um, uh, this another aspect, which is like didn't happen, but actually it can bring like a huge harm to at least to to the European continent. I don't know how, how how it's easier should be solved because, like, from Ukrainian side, we can't go there and like we can't target such uh, facilities because it's just mm-hmm. dangerous. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know who, how we are going to solve this problem. And plus, uh, like, Kherson is now also occupied and it's not far from the South Ukrainian nuclear power plant station. And actually the Rivne Rivna nuclear power plant station is very close to Belarusian border, uh, where there's also a lot of Russian troops. So, yeah, we don't know how the situation can go and how it will end.
2: In warning about the potential impact of damage to Zaporizhia, Yevhenia addresses an important point. Damage to the environment and the resulting impact doesn't respect state borders. What happens in Ukraine doesn't stay in Ukraine, so to speak. In fact, this is a point she would bring up throughout her interview.
1: Uh, with a flood of coal mines, it means that actually it's not affecting only the Ukrainian side, only Ukraine, but um, ground water don't have borders, so it means that that groundwater actually went also to the Russia, because it's very close and just with the borders. So actually Russian people also been affected from, uh, from affected territory on Donbas, so it also have effect on them. And uh, what does it mean there? Uh, flooded mines it means that uh, there could be some radiation raised and uh, some chemicals can be also like uh, numbers can be like raised uh, a few times more than it should be. Do you see other examples or do you have other concerns for
4: uh, the fighting in Ukraine having impact beyond the borders of Ukraine itself?
1: Another aspect is also marine ecosystem, because uh, Black Sea and Azov Sea are connected with a lot of many countries like Georgia, Turkey, Romania, Bulgaria, and uh, because of Russian uh, Russian actions, there even been some information that in Romania, if and right, they also saw that dolphins uh, which has been uh, affected from all that mines that Russia left uh, in the Black Sea and uh, the huge effect from, uh, for example, uh, that uh, the reconstruction of the Crimean bridge uh, that Russia established like a few years ago, its actually already affect the marine ecosystem and a lot of science told that Russia should not build that bridge because it, like, it would affect a lot uh, negatively the ecosystem, but of course nobody listens. So now when it's um, yeah, targeting, even though it's from the military side, it's probably good because Russia using that bridge to bring like a military support to attack Kherson. Uh, but from environment impact, it actually would be have a huge effect.
2: In talking about the Crimean bridge and it being targeted, Yevenia is referring to an explosion that occurred on the 8th of October, which destroyed the bridge that connects Crimea, an area annexed by Russia in 2014, with Russia's rail and road network. It was used by Russia as a key supply route during the war. So, while Yavinia acknowledges that the bridge's destruction provides Ukraine with a key military advantage, she also mentions how the explosion is causing further negative effects to the marine ecosystem there. What is heartbreaking is that the impact of this war will leave a mark on Ukraine and the Ukrainian population for years to come.
1: What we are saying now and why we are trying to bring attention to this topic, uh, because even if the war would stop now or even if the war would stop like a few months uh, before, uh, it means that from environmental perspective, uh, the harm that Russia brought is huge. Uh, from all that pollution that actually they brought to us, it, it will mean that it will affect us like. A, in years uh, after the war would stop. Uh, there are some examples that in France, after the Second World War, they still have a conser- uh, conserved uh, lands, uh, just because there was like also uh, fights and uh, the soil is still polluted, still polluted in uh, 2020, 2022. Uh, so, um, uh, that the Russian doing now, it means like uh, in some cases, maybe in 50 or 60, 70 years, we would not recover. And that means that uh, it will impact us. One year
3: of the war uh, takes 10 years of the demining. It's nobody can... Just say you how long it will take to recover, to restore, to rebuild the country after the armed conflict. It depends on how Ukrainians are ready to take their responsibility. Our international partners are ready to support Ukraine. And uh, we understand that there is a huge damage in environmental area, and we need uh, to have a really financial uh, support uh, to clean up all this harm for the environment.
2: You know, listening to these interviews left me with just an overwhelming sense of sadness, of how months of fighting, which is is horrible in and of itself— will have an impact that lasts for years, and and even decades.
0: And it's not just Ukraine, right? There are many places around the world where civilians are living with the devastating consequences of conflict. From the flattening of cities and homes, to the kind of environmental damage that our guests talked about today. Damage that has a direct impact on populations' access to the resources that they need to survive and to live healthy lives. You know, just as an example, we might think that the Vietnam War is something of the past, but Tens of thousands of people have been killed by leftover landmines and other unexploded ordnance, which also leaves natural land unlivable. The use of Agent Orange and napalm by the U.S. military has left a legacy of pollution, causing birth defects and cancer, and caused massive deforestation that altered the ecosystem in Vietnam. And the widespread use of explosive ammunition caused craters that contribute to soil infertility to this day. It's estimated that, for example, it'll take about a century before Vietnam's tropical mangrove forests have recovered from the impact of the war.
2: You know, looking at contemporary conflict, the situation isn't much better. Beyond Ukraine, colleagues at PACS are monitoring environmental damage as a result of armed conflict in Iraq and Syria. But we also see environmental degradation as a result of fighting in Gaza and in Yemen. and, And the list goes on. We may not even know the true impact for years to come. Questions have also been raised about the role of the war industry itself in contributing to climate change, even in peacetime. Few people may be aware that the US Department of Defense is the biggest consumer of oil worldwide, resulting in carbon dioxide emissions that are comparable to that of a country like the size of Denmark. When we turn to the UK, the carbon dioxide emissions from its military activities make up almost half of that country's total emissions.
0: That is huge. For all of these reasons, former U.N. Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon once called the environment a silent casualty of war and armed conflict.
2: And, you know, fortunately for us, there are people like Yevenya and Irenya and many other climate researchers and activists who refuse to let the environment be a silent casualty any longer by bringing the impact of war to our attention again and again. But before we wrap the episode, here's Irenya on what she is aiming for with her work And what gives her purpose?
3: If you talk in general about the results that I hope to achieve, it's primarily to convey people quality information. Uh, with verified data through the preparation of thematic reports and participation to distribute this information in relevant working groups. We are currently finalizing a report on energy infrastructure damage that will be published shortly. Also, I believe that database of verified incidents from military actions can be used for a future purpose to hold Russia accountable in means of environmental damage. It gives me a sense in my work.
4: If I may interrupt Irina, what would accountability of Russia look like ideally? I've seen
3: that uh, we need to create, I mean Ukrainians with international support create some mechanisms of how to get from Russia a compensation for environmental damage and reparations for crimes against the environment that cause ecocide. The term ecocide is applied to a variety of environmental harms, including from military actions. And there is a new ecocide definition developed by an independent expert panel convened by the Stop Ecocide Foundation. Uh, And here we can support uh, the hope uh, that that the new definition presents a workable crime capable of being adopted into the mandate of International uh, Criminal Court in Rome Statute. Uh, A new crime of ecocide uh, is expansion of international accountability for environmental harm, including uh, the ongoing situation with uh, the Parisian nuclear power plant the shelling of the nuclear plants is uh, uh, absolutely under the uh, term of eco-site and the proposed crime extends the possibility of prosecution for environmental damage in the context in the context of the war for harm such as water pollution through oil spills losses of biodiversity as we said and ecosystems uh, land and soil contamination and air pollution
2: So, essentially, Irina is proposing that ecocide, in the form of massive harm to the environment from military operations, becomes a crime. Something that armed actors or governments could be prosecuted for, you know, held accountable for. That would be a big step in showing how seriously we take the protection of the environment. Yvena also talked about the future and what changes she would like to see, and she challenged us to think about our industries and dependence on fossil fuels more broadly because there's a clear link there to war and conflict.
1: The third part of Russian budget is coming from the fossil fuel. Actually, now the fossil fuel has also brought uh, war to our country like because Russia is financing it. So it's almost the same amount that the EU, for example, paid uh, for the fossil fuels to Russia. It's almost the same amount Russia needs per day for the uh, army support, military support. So actually, even like um, individual civil society in Europe, and internationally reduce the consumption on fossil fuel depends on Russia it it can help a lot Um, and there is a lot of information that actually like uh, developed countries using a a lot more resources so it's actually like possible to reduce and do a lot more Uh, not to pay to Russia for that and plus like because last five years I worked on climate change and climate policy And, like, uh, everybody knows that fossil fuels are bringing climate change. So, we see that it's only, like, bringing harm from the war perspective and from the climate change. So, actually, we can do a lot, like, by ourselves just to reduce some consumption.
2: In fact, addressing dependency on fossil fuels in general could be a driver for peace, not just in Ukraine, but in other areas of the world, too.
1: There is a lot of information that a lot of dictatorship regimes are depends on the fossil fuels so um, reducing the consumption of fossil fuels that can help to prevent future conflicts and war not only in ukraine but in other regions and countries too so we need to think and uh, reconsider like how we live our life
2: and here are packs we're also working to gather more attention for the links between conflict, the environment, and climate, especially considering the impacts on civilian lives and livelihoods. Although international recognition has grown in recent years, international prevention, mitigation, and response efforts have continued to be decentralized, disjointed, and disparate. So in the United Nations, for example, we're advocating for the establishment of a UN system-wide Environment, Peace, and Security Agenda. This can lead to better and more systematic monitoring and data collection about environmental dimensions of armed conflict, which in turn can lead to improved and more sustainable mitigation and response measures. The environment should become part of conflict analysis, humanitarian initiatives, and peacebuilding programs. We further advocate that in talking about the protection of civilians, We also need to talk about the environment because, you know, as we have heard, civilians ultimately pay the price if the environment is harmed. And finally, Ukraine has shown that the UN needs to establish a rapid response mechanism so that we can react quickly in case of urgent environmental risks, like the ones to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant.
0: That's it for this episode on the impact of armed conflict on the environment. We'll explore the reverse, how climate change can be a driver of conflict in part two coming soon. But first we'll return with a broadcast on the unprecedented global political declaration to protect civilians from the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. Explaining how this landmark declaration came about and why it's so important for the safety of civilians worldwide.
2: The Civilian Protection Podcast is brought to you by the Center for Civilians in Conflict and PACS. Two NGOs working to improve the lives of civilians caught in conflict. Today's episode was written by Erin Bell, with assistance from Annie Scheel, Mark Arlasco, Samavan Usward, Tate Mushinahama, and Brittany Rosar. It was produced by the podcast guru. Hajurnali and Tate Mushinahama made sure that we're online. We'd like to thank Yevenia Zasiatko and Irina Nikolaeva for joining us as guests.
0: You can find us on Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts. We wanna hear from you. Share your thoughts on this episode or topics you'd like us to cover by emailing civilianprotectionpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at protectionpod to stay up to date on our episodes and guest speakers and to get behind the scenes content like full interviews. Find those full interviews and upcoming episodes on our website, civiliansinconflict.org slash podcast and protectionofcivilians.org. Thanks for listening.